This Architecture podcast is sponsored by Adelaide. Remember where's Waldo? He was 100% viewable, but still awfully hard to find. Your digital ads are like Waldo. Viewable, but in a sea of distractions. You need to move beyond viewability. Adelaide helps brands like Mars, Audi, Colgate, and the NBA measure media quality and drive better performance by optimizing campaigns programmatically with attention data. Adelaide's metric, AU, is available at nearly every major DSP and SSP, making it easy to leverage attention metrics. Get a free Waldo was viewable t-shirt at adelaidemetrics.com slash Waldo. Welcome to the Architecture Podcast. I'm Ari Paparo. I'm joined today by Eric Franchi and our special guest today, Jess Sibley, the CEO of Time. Jess, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Ari. It's good to talk to you and Eric today. We were just joking before we got online that uh, you're the most important guest we've ever had. Uh, but that uh, I shouldn't say that because now all of our previous guests are going to be insulted. I, th- I think you say that to all of your guests, but thank you. I really could. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, we're setting a high bar for future guests, I guess. Yeah. And um, I, I think, uh, you know, that that could be a sort of like, you know, a, a debated. What can't be debated is I would confidently say that Jess is our coolest guest. You should all go to her LinkedIn and see all of the incredible people that uh, she interacts with at all of these events that time has. Um, pretty, pretty incredible list of folks. So some quick housekeeping. So uh, I want to remind everyone that our AI bot is still available publicly. So if you go to Architecture TV, click on the AI tab, you can ask it all sorts of interesting questions about ad tech. We released last week an interview with the LinkedIn head of advertising. That's a really interesting listen. Uh, and this week we did a great interview with uh, MIQ, which is sort of the biggest ad tech company people haven't really heard of. They execute programmatic. They have about a huge amount of revenue, very successful company. It's a really interesting interview. Also, uh, to toot our own horn, our guest from last week, Ad Tech God, ran a pretty big survey online on Twitter about people's favorite influencers and favorite podcasts, and they ranked the Architecture podcast as the number one ad tech podcast. So not exactly scientific. Our friends at Ad Exchanger just came a little hair below us, uh, but I'm pretty excited about that, given that we, Eric and I just started this thing this year. Eric, were you uh, were you excited? Do you tell your family about this? You know it. First thing this morning, actually. <laughs> My kids were, my kids had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> exactly. All right, let's get into it. So, Eric, you want to take the lead here? Yeah, absolutely. And, and Jess, thanks again so much for doing this. So, you are the CEO of Time. Time is a pretty incredible asset company brand um, all in one. It's 100 years old, literally 100 years old, right? It was started in 1923, yes? It is. And it's such an incredible time for me to be here as the CEO. I can't really say new anymore because I hit my six month mark. And this is an incredible time for our storied brand. And, you know, our, our mission remains true today to what it has been for the last 100 years. We are a trusted brand rooted in our content and our journalism. And our purpose is to make sure that we are always telling the stories about the ideas and the people that are making the most impact, having the most influence, and and building the best future. And that remains true today. And I think it's just an incredible time for me to lead this brand. And it's something that I've done, you know, pretty much throughout my entire career. 
working for, you know, incredible, venerable media brands in a constantly changing media environment um, with lots of different economic cycles and making sure that we're on a journey and a path of transformation. So when I think of time, I think of, you know, just the iconic magazine um, from you know, my youth and I think all, all of our all of our youths. Um, but when we started chatting about the business when when you first landed there, I was like really blown away by how I think already diversified the business is. Could you like walk us through time, you know, as a business and all the all the various parts and, and moving parts of it? Yeah, we do enjoy and are proud of Time magazine. We still remain the largest magazine in the news category. And there are many individuals who still love reading print, and we will continue to deliver an incredible product to them. Uh, with that said, we've been on a journey of of innovation, of transformation, and really of diversification of our business. We have a digital business, time.com, and we're across all of the platforms. I'm really excited that the team let me know this week that we hit over 200,000 followers on TikTok, and that's actually in line with some of our competitors. And so what we've done is we're delivering our content in many formats across many platforms. And as you mentioned, 100 years, we have the largest audience in our history at over 105 million. And diversification is something that we're going to continue to do. We've put some new businesses in place that we're growing. Um, we're doing a lot of testing and learning. Really proud of Time Studios, which is our Emmy award-winning TV and film division. We're in the unscripted space. We're doing some scripted work as well in documentaries and docu-series. Again, all around our stories and telling the stories in different formats. This is about 25% of our overall revenues, and we hit a milestone of $100 million. And that's something that we're going to continue to, to push. We launched um, Time CO2, our climate action and sustainability platform. We believe we have the right to own and win in sustainability and climate. Justin Worland is the number one leading climate journalist. He works for time in our D.C. office. Like many others in media, we have an incredible events business. Our events, uh, as you mentioned, I've traveled the world in the last six months for time. Uh, in many cases, you know, leading and being on the stage of our events, we get incredible access to talent, our time community. We've got the Time 100 platform and person of the year. We've extended that to Earth Awards. We've extended that to Impact Awards. And, you know, what I love about time having traveled the world is this brand is so powerful and so meaningful, whether you're in D.C., whether you're in Davos or Dubai or even places like Dallas and many others that I visited. And then, you know, a couple of recent things that I've done in the last six months, we launched a content to commerce business partnering with Taboola, time stamped. So again, all around our trusted journalism and those consumers that are coming to time for information, not just about what's going on in the world, but also about decisions that they're making in, you know, healthcare, financial services and products and things like that. It's cool. And, you know, like you, you give the impression that this thing is like exciting and, and growing. And it's fascinating because oftentimes what we hear about the media business 
is somewhat the opposite or decidedly opposite, right? With Vice um, going bankrupt and, you know, BuzzFeed um, having all, all their challenges. Like, how do you think about the media business today and, you know, building something that is sustainable and able to, to grow and, and excel, which seems like you're already doing six months in? Well, you said I was um, an important guest, but you also said I was a cool guest. Yes. And I would say right now being legacy is cool and it's in. And I've only done legacy my entire career. I've only worked for brands that needed to go on a pretty serious transformative diversification type of strategy and journey. And what I'll say in a crisis of trust right now, being a trusted legacy brand is really important and really compelling. And when I think about what that means, a couple things. Number one, the YouGov study was a really big conversation. Who are the trusted brands? The newcomers, unfortunately, were at the very bottom. Brands like Time and others that have been around a long time were at the very top. And I think that that is really important when you look at audiences that we're reaching, new audiences that we want to reach and need to reach, and then marketers that it's really important to, to them to align with trusted brands. It's legacy to relevancy. So that's what I'm here to do is to make sure that we have this brand. A lot of people said to me in the beginning when I asked them, like, what does time mean? What do you think of when you when you think of time? What's your experience with our products and our journalism? And I heard nostalgia. Nostalgia is the past. And there's so much in our past that's so important and meaningful. When I did travel around the world, I will tell you that everyone has a time story and everyone wanted to tell me their time story. So how do you take what's so important about the past and so significant and draw that into the future? And I think when you look at media, it's constantly changing. Consumer behavior is changing, but legacy now is really meaningful. And, and I'm excited because I don't think I could actually say that that much in, in the past for me in other places at other times that I've, that I've worked and gone through kind of what we're doing here today. It sounds like uh, a big part of this is the diversified sources of revenue. Um, you mentioned commerce and all these other aspects to the time business. Is that a part of the, uh, from the business perspective, a part of the sustainability plan to not be too dependent on commoditized ads? I'd love to hear your opinion on that. Yeah, look, we're always looking for new models. I think for us, you know, news and information and content is at the core of everything that we do. And when we get together and we look at new opportunities, and I'm looking at them every day for time, it always has to align with our brand and then with our content. And then we have audiences. And how do we build really meaningful audiences that matter to marketers? So that's sort of the third part, legacy, relevancy, and then revenue. And diversification is going to be critical. I mean, we're in a situation where, and we've lived through this, right, together. We had a magazine business. We had a TV business. Overall, then all of a sudden we had digital and then, and then mobile and then social and, and now, you know, generative AI and, and so many different, you know, different things coming at us. And 
Web3. We want to be in Web3. We want to go. I saw a terrifying slide of, you know, who was in Web1 and then who didn't make it to Web2, who started in Web2. And, you know, here we are in Web3. What does that look like? I think, you know, for for your audience and for the conversations that you have every day, technology is critical for us. Ad tech in particular is critical for us. I've always been a leader that makes sure that I know every CEO of every potential partner. Um, when you asked me about our content and commerce business, you know, I was able to identify, you know, three to four partners and direct to the CEO to work together to see who would be the right fit for us. And Adam at Taboola was. And how that works here, we work together with edit, we work together with tech and product and revenue, and we identify, you know, where we want to take this business and what we want to explore. And we're going to keep doing that. I, I want to ask a follow up on that because that's really interesting. Um, was it a situation where you and your executive team said, we want to do something in commerce, we want to take advantage of the opportunity with a blank piece of paper, and then you ended up down the line with the Taboola partnership? Or was it uh, the vendors pushing and saying, hey, you're, here's an opportunity and you're choosing between vendors? I would answer it that I will do all of them, right? So number one, I know a lot of companies. I know a lot of CEOs. I brought every single one of them in here because I want to be a fast mover and I need and want all the help I can get. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that. And if somebody can help my business, help my technology, help my revenue, help understand and identify how we can compete in a changing, you know, rapidly changing media landscape as that's just not on the tax side or on the business side, but also on the editorial side. I will talk to everyone and anyone who can help give us an advantage. I want us to be a culture of yes, not no. I want us to be a culture of curiosity and testing and learning and taking risks. That's number one. Right. Number two, for the content to commerce business, that was something that I had a lot of experience in coming from Forbes, where I was previously the chief operating officer. Um, we had a, a really strong and growing business. So I saw a lot of success there. Here at time, we were already at that. It was just when you think about priorities, it just really wasn't a priority. And it wasn't something that was really working for us and our current partner. So one of the first things I did was assess, do we want to stay with what we're doing. I know this is an important business for our audience, for our journalism, for our revenue, for our diversification strategy. And then I was able to quickly identify other partners. And I don't want to call it an RFP, but I look at what the best opportunities would be for time going forward. And Taboola stood out big time for us. We were already working with them in other areas as well. So we already had a relationship, an existing relationship that was really effective. And some other publishers historically have dabbled with the idea that they're tech companies. Uh, the uh, Washington Post invested pretty heavily and there was that horrible uh, portmanteau of, of a platisher, I think was hit. But it sounds like you're oh. taking sort of more <laughs> platisher. <laughs> <laughs> the um, uh, that you're taking more of a pragmatic approach. Like, how does technology help you achieve your media goals? You know, overall, technology is the most important thing for all of us. I think when you have product 
and it has to work. The tech has to work. When you have experience, the tech matters so much. So I'm flying every week. I'm a huge Delta flyer. They get all my business. I look up to and admire Ed Bastian, their, their CEO. And the technology works really well. Is Delta technology company? I wouldn't say that. But the experience that they offer for a consumer from identifying, you know, how I'm going to get there, making the the reservation, the experience going through point A to point B, being on the airplane, being able to work using their technology. And that to me is really important in, in everything and including everything that we do at time. So th- this audience that listens to this podcast, d- decidedly ad tech, right? So you know you, you are a very important guest because uh, for probably half our audience, you're the customer. The, o- the other half, right? They, they focus on the, on the marketer. So you know the, the digital ads, digital media side of this is, is quite important. Recently, you made the decision to remove the paywall, which I think is interesting because that has implications. I think positive implications for the ad side of the business. What, what was the, the thinking behind that? When you think about our purpose and our mission and technology and business, the decision was easy. First off, at time, we believe trusted information should be available to everyone everywhere, regardless of where you live um, and regardless of what you can afford to pay. And when you think about removing the paywall, we fundamentally believe in that purpose and in our brand of journalism, right, for our audience, as well as reaching new audiences. So it wasn't just removing the paywall and getting that access at any time, everywhere, globally, for free, but it was also having the opportunity to lift and bring forth our hundred years of our archives. And so we thought that was a really important thing to do. We are in a crisis of trust. We have rigorously reported journalism for the last 100 years that is modest and unbiased. And, you know, there are a couple of things that when I think about purpose and I think about driving and leading change as a CEO, I'll go back to Ed Bastian at CS. Ed Bastian on stage announced free Wi-Fi and Delta. He did not say free Wi-Fi and Delta, so switch from American Airlines. He said everyone has the right to stay in communication, in contact with whoever they need to, with whatever class of service that they're on. They believe in technology. They believe in connectivity. And we are in a chaotic world. And if something happens, you should have the ability to stay connected to your colleagues, to your loved ones. And that was his position and that was his mission. And the second was I was then in Davos. So I went from CS to Davos and I had a chance to also get to know Hans Vesberg, the CEO of Verizon, and to learn a lot about the work that he's been doing around digital inclusivity and the digital divide, which was so exacerbated through through the pandemic. So I felt that it is our goal to be in service of truth and progress as humanity's trusted guide. The technology aspect was, again, about the experience and who likes going to want to read something and you can't read it? Or you have to log in and you can't remember your passcode or you're paying for things that you're not reading anymore. So having a better experience with our product was really important for us. 
And lastly, you know, the the business decision, I, I think when you look at the subscription business um, overall, not just for for media, I think we peaked and we're seeing decline. The FTC is very much going to advocate for consumers and the whole recurring revenue and not knowing or not having a lot of transparency or opt out opportunities. It's kind of game over for that. So it all really um, lined up for us. And I'm really proud of the work that we're doing. And uh, we are talking to partners who want to align with us in these messages. I was inspired by Tracy D. Hall. We named her a Time 100. She's the first woman of color um, to lead the American Library Association. And she talked a, a lot about, you know, free people read freely. Uh, Suzanne Nossel, the CEO of Penn, somebody that I had the great fortune to to work with at the Wall Street Journal. She spoke last week at the Penn Gala about writing freely. So I think that, again, when you think about cool and you think about in, we're very much in where a place where we want to be. I, I love the whole conversation about free information and readers and all that. But I have to ask, are you making mon more money or less money since you switched? We're going to make more money. Yeah. I mean, uh. look, I would say I went first. I'm not going to be the last and the only subscription businesses work for some brands and for some types of content. I also want to say that that doesn't mean we're not going to be in the subscription business. So, you know, we have something really compelling and really specific and niche with what we're doing in climate and what we're doing with CO2. Simon Mulcahy, 15-year Salesforce executive, is the president of sustainability here. He um, is our CEO of Time CO2. We launched our first ever Earth Awards. Uh, we're going to continue to do this. We reach and have very deep engagement with a very specific audience, chief sustainability officers and many others that are active in this space. And for that type of journalism, for that type of product, yes, clearly it's a different business model. Do you have any challenges uh, with the news category, um, you know, as being you know attractive and and safe and sellable to marketers? We don't have any trouble with that, and you know, there's a lot of uh, new studies out, not just the the YouGov, but we feel like we're in a really good place in terms of modest and unbiased. You know, Molly Ball's all over the news today on CNN and MSNBC about her story on DeSantis. I mean, she's covered him for years. I think they went to school together. Our cover story has, you know, gone viral. Obviously, he announced on Twitter yesterday. So, you know, we feel really good about what we write about and who we write for, whether that's, you know, what's going on in the news, politics, healthcare, culture. We're really proud of that. I'm really proud of the Bad Bunny cover. We got picked up by places that we hadn't really noticed us before, CNN Espanol. And he gave he gave only only two interviews. One was to Billboard and one was to us. And so at time we say, and I'll just end with this and we can get into other topics, but when it's in history, it's in time. And when it's in time, it's history. And we're making history. I love it. Um one more quick one and then we'll we'll break for for the for the ad break and then and then talk about the news of the week. What's it like working for uh, Mark Benioff? Well, I work for Mark and Lynn Benioff. So, Mark and Lynn, yes. Yeah. For those that don't know, Mark and Lynn Benioff are our co owners and co chairs. They own time directly and privately. And Mark is one of the greatest CEOs of our generation. I would say not top 10, top five, probably top three. 
And I have a great opportunity to work with him directly as well as Lynn. And I've learned so much. He's uh, a visionary. He's a genius. He's demanding. And he's really supportive. Operationally, we're independent. And editorially, we're independent. That's great. So this is a good place to break. So we'll be back in one moment. All right. This is a paid commercial advertisement from our sponsor, Flash Talking by MediaOcean. This ad was written by the Marketecture AI. So the copy was written by the AI, and I'm going to read it for you. Hey there, Marketecture listeners. It's your favorite ad tech guru, Ari Paparo, here to talk about our sponsor for today's episode, Flash Talking by MediaOcean. Now, you might be thinking, Flash Talking? That sounds like a superhero with a really specific power. But let me tell you, Flash Talking is actually a powerful ad platform that helps brands and agencies deliver amazing digital experiences to their audiences. With Flash Talking, you can create and deliver personalized ads that really resonate with your target customers. And the best part, you can do it all in one place thanks to MediaOcean's seamless integration. So if you're tired of juggling multiple ad platforms and want to streamline your digital advertising efforts, head over to MediaOcean.com slash Flash Talking to learn more. Trust me, your customers will thank you for it. That's MediaOcean.com slash Flash Talking. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode of Marketecture. All right, we're back. Uh, the AI is getting pretty good at writing these ads. So, um, favorite ad tech group. <laughs> let's uh, let's go through the news of the week. Um, some interesting news here. So, my favorite topic. The only thing we talk about more than Elon Musk is the trade desk. Um, they are probably the most consequential company <laughs> in our space. Uh, and um, so they have a teaser announcement for a big new product they're calling Kokai K O K A I. So we have a lot to talk about. First thing is the name. So they've got a problem over there with naming. They have some of these Hawaiian names, and then they have Galileo, and then they have Open Path. Like, pick a lane, guys. This does not make any sense. Am I, am I crazy here, Eric? Or, or, like, this is a pretty legitimate criticism, I think. Yeah, it's it's all over the place. Um, I think picking a lane would be a, a good recommendation. And uh, I don't even know how to pronounce Kokai. No. Uh, I, believe, <laughs> I believe that's correct. Um, so that, that'll be the first question I have. Um, the first question. So they they had previously used a Hawaiian name. I think it's called Kai. Is there is there sort of automatic optimization AI thing? So people are pretty sure this has something to do with this. So I I put up a Twitter poll asking people to guess what it was, and uh, and I gave the option. So it's not really a scientific test, and it was really evenly split between optimization, connected TV, publisher data or other, right? So there was no consensus on the guessing. But then a um, very nice person uh, from what's called Five Putt Capital Advisors, I have no idea what that is, sent me a screenshot from a newsletter that was from a Wall Street analyst that said, I'm going to reread this. The Trade Desk previewed Kokai, a new AI tool, which will be formally launched at an event in New York. The focus appears to be on using AI to generate code faster, help customers interact with data generate creative for CTV, and provide virtual assistance to shorten the learning curve for programmatic advertising. Wow, that sounds like a lot of stuff. I don't know what that There's is. Some... <laughs> well, some, number one, that's that's a lot. Number two, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would imagine with the AI uh, ending, this has something to do with AI. But then also, and we'll talk about this a little bit later on, the announcements from you know the big tech companies around AI over the course of the past week or two, it hasn't been a single thing. It is like, here's how we are changing our entire business with AI. Yeah. So I can imagine yeah. this is correct. And they're like, okay, we're going to do this. So we're going to do this. So we're going to do this. So my bet is that it's going to be AI. It's going to be 
all-encompassing. It's going to touch the most important parts of their business. Right. It'd be interesting to see if this is really a customer-centric announcement or more Wall Street-centric. Yeah. Um, so, Jess, what's your as a publisher, what's your relationship with a giant buyer like the Trade Desk? Are you on you know first name basis with Jeff? Are you like part of Open Path? How how does that work? Yeah, we. I mean, Jeff is unbelievable, and the business that they built is unbelievable. And you know, we we quite honestly, we probably need a stronger, closer relationship. If you can make an introduction, please do. <laughs> We've been trying to get him on the podcast. Okay. He listens to the podcast, Jeff. Come on. But I do think it's interesting. The publisher is such a focus with all of these announcements, with Open Path from TTD, and then you know this uh, all of the the SSPs creating their, their their own products. Really, a lot of this is about helping the publisher win through just greater yield and, and greater revenue. So. It's true. Like, do you have a lot of these larger companies, Matic, TTD, so on and so forth? Um, are they making you feel like the publisher and the sell side, Jess, is is more important these days? Yes, and I brought that here to time because coming from Forbes, we relied a lot on that, and we were always first movers, and we always incorporated, you know, technology into our ability to drive our digital business and. You know, quite honestly, we have a lot of work to do here. We have a small digital business that definitely needs a lot of support and growth. And we're we're working on all of that now. So we're working with Permutive. Um, that's a new relationship. Lytics. We're moving from, you know, up to Gutenberg with WordPress. It's every day. And I'm asking my team on the tech side, on the digital side, to explore all and every opportunity that we can. Specifically, are you participating in Trade Desk's Open Path? Yes. Are you any any results? Do anything you I, want to share? I don't. I have to get back to you on that. You, you have people to do that for you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, cool. Uh, let's talk about um, Group M upgraded Twitter. As soon as Linda's announcement came out, Group M says Twitter is no longer high risk for their clients. Kind of interesting. Nothing changes except Linda's name gets attached to it and it's all hunky dory. Um, Eddie, <laughs> am I being cynical or, uh, or is this real? I looked at the post and you can, you can add it to the, to the show notes um, yeah. from you know, the, the analysis of it. It seemed like they were doing the work around this for some time in terms of understanding some of these brand safety features that Elon's been talking about, understanding the controls. And then, you know, with, with Linda joining and being a, sort of a, a known entity and um, also, frankly, being a longtime champion of brand safety, I think it's it was a couple of factors that came together and, you know, well-timed with Linda's appointment. And then, um, yeah, her, her probably being the, you know, more than the icing on the, on the cake on this. I mean, this is like really positive for Twitter, quite frankly, you know, and positive in terms of the, the hire that they made with Linda. She joins and then the largest media buyer in the world gives a thumbs up, like, it's yeah. pretty awesome for them and probably makes Elon feel good about about the appointment. I'm going to guess there were some phone calls from Linda to some folks at Group M, like, hey, do me a solid. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> perhaps either, either way it worked, right? Um, that's um, I think that's that's big, right? All right. Let's talk about the Facebook fine from the EU. Um, so this is really complicated. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But uh, so Facebook was was fined one point four billion dollars by the EU. This is not a GDPR violation. This is a cross-border data movement problem. 
there, uh, our colleague Eric Sufer did, as usual, his ridiculously detailed explanation of this, both on Twitter and on his blog. You should check it out. I'm going to summarize along the short version of the story, which is after the NSA allegations came out from revelations from Snowden came out, it became a priority for Europeans to protect their data, and not allow their data to come to the United States, because presumably if they're stored in a data center in the United States, the government, the United States government could spy on them. Um, there was a thing called the Privacy Shield that was agreed to between the EU and the U.S., which allowed U.S. businesses to do this with certain restrictions. Then there was this like young, scrappy law student in Germany named Schrems, and you may have heard of the Schrems case. Basically, this guy sued and said the Privacy Shield wasn't good enough. He won. So that was called Schrems won, and the Privacy Shield went away. Then there was a second agreement, I can't remember the name of it, that was also sued by Schrems again, and Schrems won again. So that was called Schrems 2. Now there is an agreement the Biden administration has made with the EU to allow this to the data transfer to happen. But it has not been agreed to by the EU yet. It's like in the rules making process. And in the interim, while there's no rules, um, the various groups within the EU disagreed. There was some litigation. And long story short, it's illegal, currently illegal to store European data on U.S. data centers. Uh, which basically affects every media company, every tech company, every anyone who does business exactly. in Europe, unless you have totally isolated servers, which are very few people do. So that's a mess. Yeah. So let's unpack this. So number one, what are the chances that that Meta actually pays this fine or just quickly appeals and says, hey, this is you know still being debated and, and you know, ultimately be, be worked out. And, you know, we're not going to pay when who knows, 60, 90 a year later, um, you know, there's going to be some sort of law in place. Like, it seems like that is the logical play here. Yes. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm no expert in politics in Europe, but um, th the fact that this is sort of an administrative problem, and, and I think the folks involved in Europe understand that, that this is sort of between two regulations, um, makes it doubtful in my mind that it'll actually get paid or that it will uh, continue to affect other companies if they are able to make the rulemaking relatively soon. Yeah. And then to your point, this affects everybody. This everybody. literally affects everybody if, if that's the case. Yeah. When I was at Beeswax, I started investigating the idea of keeping our data locally in Europe, not bringing it to the U.S. for processing. And the lawyers advised me that even if I had a U.S. employee able to access that data, it was as good as having the data in the U.S. So I would need different teams in Europe to touch the data. It's just ridiculous. There's no way to comply in, in an ad tech, any sort of big data ad tech marketing play, no way to comply. Or even uh, in a, a cost-effective way. Yes, like having an office and people um, probably makes it um, makes it non-profitable. Just as as a, I guess I'd shape as like as a CEO of a company, do you do you keep your eye on things like this? Does this keep you up at night, or is this like someone else's problem? No, it does compliance and all of that. I work really closely with our chief legal officer. She's probably the one I work most closely with. Security, all of these things, our time tech team. Yeah, I didn't understand the whole the whole Facebook fine. I was trying to figure that out myself because they're I, the sources that I was looking at in terms of news and information weren't that comprehensive. We always take the conservative path. We right. always, we always take, and that's just part of our ownership. You asked about Mark and Lynn. That is our values. That is just how we operate as a company and as a culture. I bet Mark is very concerned about this, given his business. 
that really affects any sort of large data business. Um, yeah. It's our business. Well, speaking of things that, that keep us up at night, you want to you run through AI? Yeah, there's a lot of AI. We can't possibly keep up on the AI news, but let's just focus on the ad tech play here. So Google uh, is suggesting that they're going to use generative AI for ad copy, keywords, search marketing stuff. Um, they are generating AI for Pmax. Uh, they're having AI result in Bard uh, and more. And Meta also is, I think, announced. I don't have the exact link, but I think Meta already announced that they're going to do generative AI for creative. It seems to me like the low-hanging fruit here is walled gardens, where they control everything. So giving the customer the option to generate some creatives is within their world. They know what works and what doesn't. They can turn them on and off very quickly. Seems like that's going to be the opportunity much more than open web experimentation with AI for the short term. I think you're right. I think it's the it's the first step. And what I think is interesting is these announcements. You know, the Google stuff was all encompassing. It was around search. It was around Bard. But you know, the, the they're being very explicit, Google and Meta, about applying generative AI to Pmax. Which is Google's like kind of blind, blind um, uh, black box uh, ad, ad network, and Meta was doing the same with with Advantage Plus. So you know, what, one could imagine that you know they, they start making these things that much more performant. These you know fast growing, high margin parts of their business are only going to get stronger and stronger, and I think ultimately it's going to show the power of AI, and it, it starts making its way into the into the walled gardens. I mean, this is this is super important stuff, and it's happening so quickly. Again, it's a, it's at once stressful and and you know hard to hard to stay stay on top of. There's a couple others we should talk about, but I'd love to ask Jess, like as a publisher, AI and particularly the generative AI stuff. Do you look at that as threat opportunity? Both, like how how are you thinking about it? Yeah, I would say yes, all of the above. I would quote one of the most important influential people. In AI, Sam Altman, we can't predict the future. We just, we don't know yet. A couple things I'll say about AI. We have to use it. We have to understand it. It's got to be integrated, not just into a newsroom or editorial, into our business. It's going to be integrated into everything that we do in every business, not just, not just ours and not just media. How does it make us smarter, more efficient, and faster? That's number one. And I would say that there's things that AI can do better and we can learn how to how to use that and we we need to move quickly. Number two, I'm lucky to have owners that know the most important people on this topic <laughs> and I'm able to leverage those contacts and those relationships. And there's some things that we're gonna do that I can't say now, but we'll be announcing hopefully sooner. I think Fact-checking, again, for us, when we talk about trusted journalism and truth, that's going to be really important for us. And there's something, again, that I'm working on. And then there's things that AI you know, cannot replace and cannot do. And we're going to really lean on that. Culture moments. We just launched our next generation leaders. We're really excited about everything that we're doing for like Time 100 Next or our next gen leaders. That's a partnership that we have with Rolex. And it's highlighting, you know, the 10 trendsetters and trailblazers who are are guiding us and who you may not know, you should know, or you definitely will know. And like AI can't replace that. And we'll have those individuals, we'll tell their stories, we'll convene them on our stage. 
those are the things that that we're going to lean into. We're working on our most innovative companies right now. Like that matters a lot to CEOs and people that work at those companies. And and that list will be out next month. So we're going to focus on what we can control. I'll tell you, I've learned a lot about AI from my son. <laughs> he, just, he just graduated uh, the University of Michigan like two weeks ago. And he was so proud on his graduation to tell me that he passed his final and last exam to get and earn his diploma. And the the assignment was an eight-page essay that he told me he used chat GPT. Of course. So first, I wanted to strangle him, number one, doing that. And then I wanted to strangle him again, number two, for telling me that he did that. And he said, Mom, you don't understand. The assignment was to use chat GPT. And then 45 minutes, he went on to explain to me how important knowing how to use the prompts and how to use AI to start with a theme, to then develop an outline, to then have a final eight-page factually correct essay on, oh my God, riveting topic, the labor movement of the 1930s. So I think he learned more about using AI and how students in now are being taught that at schools. Yeah, I had the exact same experience with my high school junior where he had an essay, used ChatGPT, I raised my eyebrows, and then he showed me what he did. He had a draft, submitted the draft to ChatGPT and asked for editorial advice. And the, the ChatGPT literally said, you need more examples. This paragraph doesn't really make sense, et cetera. It was just a brilliant use of the technology. I don't think any teacher would consider that cheating in any way. It's like no. incredible. Yeah, not at all. And I think, Jess, what you said before, fact-checking, what a great use case for this stuff. That makes a ton of sense. I'm looking forward to, to more announcements by, uh, by time on, on how, you, how you're doing it. A couple other things from, from this week I'm sure you know, we'll, we'll, we'll wrap is uh, there's a rumor that Spotify is going to be using AI um, to scale uh, host-read ads. So, you know, yeah, I mean, imagine using that for, for, for yours one, one day. <laughs> yeah, I, I need to replace myself. Yeah, yeah, it's it's around the corner, and then I, I would um I would encourage everybody to uh, it's online. We'll we'll post the link though to look at uh what Adobe uh, released this week. They're essentially generative AI applied to Photoshop videos. Um, it's incredible. It essentially is like what a whole class of startups has been working on for one month, and you know the market leader basically is coming out with a with a product that uh, can be can be used by every customer they're calling. So just chaos in the market. It's it's yeah. pretty crazy, but su- such a cool time. Yeah, it seems. I mean, it seems like doing a startup that's just AI is very dangerous because the distribution matters so much. Getting people to use your chat is so much harder than having Google Ad Chat, even if the the latter isn't maybe as good. But the Photoshop demos I've seen online are incredible. And, you know, it's it's really interesting to watch the space. And just another reminder, if I can remind you more, try out the architecture.tv AI, send me results, post them on Twitter. I'd love to see what, what people can do with that. It's trained on 100 hours of transcripts about in-depth ad tech topics, so it can answer really complicated questions about ad tech. With that, let's call it. So this was an amazing episode. Jess, thank you so much for being here. This was a really great conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. This was awesome. All right. Thank you, Jess. Thanks. Thank you for subscribing to Marketecture. New interviews are added every week at marketecture.tv and your favorite podcasting app.